0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cold Chain podcast. I'm Shane Brennan, and I'm Chief Executive of the Cold Chain Federation. This is a bit of an emergency podcast where we're going to have a quick conversation with uh, Professor Toby Peters about what the cold chain implications are of this uh, major breakthrough, the major news about the new vaccine. It's the first probably real prospect we've heard of of, of a return to normal. But ever since there was an announcement on Monday in the fanfare, there's been lots of attention on the pretty substantial supply chain challenges involved in distributing and administering a vaccine in every community across the world. There are big questions that immediately come out about prioritisation, of who's going to get it first and and, and whereabouts are we going to be administering vaccines and all these sorts of questions. We're not going to talk about any of that today. But one part of the story that has captured that imagination is the idea of storing and transporting the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine um, which needs to be kept at a very, very low temperature, minus 70 to minus 80 degrees C. My phone's been ringing red hot with media inquiries, and I've spoken to both the BBC and Sky over the last 24 hours about the cold chain implications of moving a product like that. So what I thought we'd do is capture our thoughts, myself and Professor Toby's, on how this p- supply chain might work. I stress might, neither of us are experts in this, both here and in the UK, but crucially also how we think about how the supply chain might work around the world, and that's particularly where Toby's expertise comes in. So perhaps we could start by saying, um, welcome to the podcast, Toby Peters.
1: Thank you, and thank you for inviting me here today to talk with you about this, uh, this really important and exciting news.
0: Um, Toby, can you tell us a little bit about yourself for the purposes of the people listening?
1: Um, so... I am Professor in Cold Economy at the University of Birmingham. I'm also the director or co-director of the Centre for Sustainable Cooling. So I'm really looking at at the system level uh, issues around cooling and cold chain uh, because cooling is, is very much the backbone of our society. We've heard this week suddenly how important cooling is to to solve the the challenges around COVID-19 and get a vaccine out there. But it's equally important for our food distribution and and in hot countries and increasingly here, it's important for our air conditioning. So cooling is is central and data for, for how we live. And what I'm trying to do is look at the challenge of how we meet our cooling needs, particularly in the developing world where more than a billion people don't have access to cooling and suffer the consequences. You know, we lose 45 percent of food post-harvest, primarily because of broken cold chain. Twenty five percent of vaccines can get lost because of broken cold chain and how we can do this in, in a way which also meets our challenges around Paris climate agreement and 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 the um, increasing emissions. Because cooling, as we know, uh, Shane, both uses a lot of energy and also uses um. Uh, high GWP, global warming potential, refrigerants. So we've got to meet our need for society, our societal need for cooling and our environmental challenges. And that's sort of where the cold economy in my work sits.
0: Absolutely. And I think both of you and I both agree this is, you know, this is a bit of a teachable moment about the importance of cold chain. You know, th- th- this, every now and then things flare up where people suddenly get very interested in the supply chain for key things. And this is probably the biggest example of that ever in in history potentially so it's good it's good to sort of use that opportunity to make sure we people understand how cold chain works I mean you and I need to have more than one conversation probably through this platform about some of these bigger issues that are our kind of core shared priorities around that kind of future of how we do cold chain but today we're going to focus very much on this specific question around around the vaccine itself Um, what we do know is that Pfizer-BioNTech have reached the stage three of the clinical trials process. And we know that this is something that, that the global pharmaceutical industry has been doing at a speed they've never done before. Um, it normally takes years to do this kind of thing, and they're doing it in months. But the trials have been more than 90% effective so far, which is apparently a very, very significant metric. There are still stages to go, though. They've got to go through safety, more safety checks and more certification at different uh, international and national levels. The other thing that's come clear is it's a pretty high tech biological product that they have produced using kind of gene modification techniques to actually do that. And it means that the product, the vaccine itself, is pretty sensitive and deteriorates very quickly. Hence, why, as has been reported, we are talking about a product that needs to be kept at minus 70 to minus 80, 80 degrees C. Now, um, with all the caveats about this, Toby, can you sort of give us sort of a feel about how what some of the supply chain challenges are in trying to store and move a product at minus 70 or minus eighty degrees C?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the the point perhaps, if I may, I'd just like to to start with is that you know this is the only the first vaccine announcement. And I don't think we should get completely focused on the ultra low temperature. I think, obviously, let's talk about it. But we've got other fridge stable vaccines coming online soon, such as with Oxford, hopefully, which will be better suited or potentially better suited for wider population coverage. And especially where I'm working in the lower and middle income countries. That though doesn't change the need that they all need a robust cold chain. And that is 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 the same whatever the temperature so basically when you look at it what the cold chain is talking about is that the the vaccine is being manufactured and it has to end up being given to people in towns in villages remote communities all over the world Mm -hmm. so it moves um from a volume of 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 the end of the manufacturing line down to where you can particularly in in the emerging markets you can have a health worker carrying a small vaccine pack maybe two or three liters of 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 or smaller of of vaccines um, out to a remote community to go and vaccinate the people and so it's every stage of the way so it starts with the movement to probably a national warehouse Then it goes down to a regional, then it goes down to a district or health centre. And then, as I said, in the developing world, it goes all the way out to uh, the, the remote village, which here you could use the same parallel. We've got to carry this down to a care home where we go and vaccinate the patients in that care home. So you start with the millions and you end up with a few dozen being vaccinated in a, in a location not everybody is going to visit a health center to get vaccinated
0: absolutely and your key point there I think is one of the key conclusions that I think we need to all be getting out there in, uh, in in people's understanding of this vaccine is the Pfizer vaccine is the first vaccine it does have this particular requirement around the ultra low temperature if we're going to immunize the world against COVID-19, it's not going to be through a vaccine that needs to be moved at minus 70 or minus 80 degrees. That's a really, really important point. And as as Toby's getting into there, and as you're saying, you know, this supply chain has a number of different stages to it. And everyone's minds immediately go to whether it's a very big, large warehouse or they start thinking about big vehicles with, with fridges on them. Actually, when it comes to vaccines in particular, keeping temperature integrity right the way through to when the vaccine is used is the key thing. And that gets harder the more remote, the more rural and the less resources there are in the places you're going to. And the parallels are there between, yeah, uh, you know, we we have problems getting to more rural areas in the UK, but it's even particularly bad when you're trying to get into very rural places in more um, remote parts of the world.
1: And if I can come in there, Shane, I mean, the point is, is that when you get down to, the, you know, we have, um, we have um, highly sophisticated warehouses and storage, but actually what one has to remember is that when you get down to the remote locations, you're using an insulated bag and an ice pack to keep it cold. So you've got high tech right the way down to, to low tech. The other thing I think which is really important as well within this it's not just about the technology to keep it cold. Um, it's also around the use of data and the data capture. So can we use data? To make sure that we're tracking the temperature the whole way through the supply chain we're knowing where the vaccines are if there are problems coming up in the in the in the chain that we can uh, manage on a on a on a real-time basis so alongside the need just for fridges which work at all the right temperatures we also need to have data to underpin it and i think that's really you know that's going to be critical for this um if we're going to deliver this successfully
0: and i think if you take a kind of developed world view of that the pharmaceutical supply chain is significantly ahead of the other the wider cold chain when it comes to temperature monitoring and real time real live reporting on temperature because of the regulatory requirements that go alongside pharmaceuticals being that step ahead of what they are in food um but again the more, more rural the more remote the more challenging the hard and the closer to the end of the supply chain you get the harder it is to keep track of that temperature integrity i would i would say can we just sorry Toby, can we just can we just spend a little bit of time on the minus 70 minus 80 cuz it's in the news um and let's sort of to, sort of make sure we sort of understand what we're talking about here you know, people, I've been asked a lot over the last 24 hours about, do we have the warehouses that can do minus 70 to minus 80 degrees centigrade storage? And the answer to that is a simple no. You we know, that It is not realistic and common practice today to have a large war warehouse with pallets and racking and forklift trucks moving around within it, operating at that low temperature. We tend to go down to about minus 20, 25, which is sort of frozen temperatures um so we were talking a little bit before we started this about about what a warehouse that's storing stuff at minus minus seventy might look like and do you have a sort of couple of sort of thoughts and impression of how that might work
1: well i think if as i understand it um they've been building some some uh you know big capacity in america and it's using uh, it's rather than have where you might have a frozen warehouse which has uh open you know is open at, at, at minus 25 this is using uh individual uh cold rooms at minus 80 um and, and and rows of those rather than having the whole space because obviously alongside how does the refrigeration system work to do uh that volume of cooling is you have to be able to work with inside those spaces so as i understand it the way they're doing this is is corridors of 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 uh, very ultra low temperature uh, large freezers rather than big warehouses. Yeah,
0: and, and and that's a really important point. And actually, what we're also talking about here, and you've already kind of alluded to it, you know, moving a vaccine at that at that at that uh, temperature essentially involves relatively low tech solutions, i.e., boxes packed lined with dry ice that can maintain a temperature for a period of time. Um, through movement, and it's actually the box itself that's keeping it at a temperature, not necessarily the environment the box is moved in.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So long, and, and then you then you come on to the other challenge to make sure you have enough um, production capacity of, of dry ice because dry ice CO two at, at minus eighty degrees C when it 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 goes solid, um, you know we we're, we're going to uh, have a big increase in demand, and one of the things we always have to remember. Is that at the moment capacity of, of is often driven by what's the current demand? So, you know, if we if we divert dry ice for um, to to support uh, the the vaccine distribution if it's available, then we have to make sure that and think about what is the implications of that from other pro- services. With
0: uh, yeah, absolutely, and I think that. Um... A dry ice problem is one of the stories that's going to come i think in terms of how we actually produce enough i mean what, what's your sort of view do you have any kind of understanding or view of what this sort of environmental impact of large-scale production use of dry ice might be in um is it is it doesn't feel like a particularly sustainable way to move product
1: this is going to be a needs must solution um the the point i think shane if i may that everybody is i think missing or not everybody, that's that's a bit um, rude, but we are missing is that alongside this technology, we don't just need uh, pieces of kit, we actually need engineers to maintain and manage it. And this is, I think, a really, really important point is that as we deliver the cold chain, be it at minus 80 or at normal, more normal temperatures, this is going to have a massive demand in the refrigeration engineers which are required to keep those cold chains working and i think alongside investing in technology we need to see as a country massive investment or significant investment to train up the engineers and support the industry to train the engineers to support this technology
0: yeah and i guess one of the questions here is you know we're going to have this little moment in the in the in the spotlight as people talk about uh about this sort of massive global challenge to get this particular vaccine out the question is is will people still be interested in a year's time when that job is done or is 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 on course and that's that's a real real challenge for all of us in this this
1: well i think they will be because the point is is that is that you are seeing the the one thing we are seeing in 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 energy and in in society is a big growth in demand for cooling So, you know, we're going to need more cooling technology, not less, be whether that's air conditioners in cars, whether that's in our supermarkets or increasingly air conditioning. So interestingly, I think in Australia, I know it's a hot country, but now in Australia, um, air conditioning engineers and refrigeration engineers is one of the most highly paid jobs. And when you're remembering globally, we are deploying somewhere between 13 and 18 cooling devices a second you know, this isn't an industry which is going away. So it seems to me that uh, there's a a big opportunity here actually for the government not simply to think about how does it train up enough people to give the injection or how many fridges do I need to buy? Also, should they be supporting the refrigeration and, and your industry in training up the engineers to support and maintain equipment?
0: Yeah, and this is an important point, isn't it? And I don't want to sort of... It's very hard when you're in the middle of 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 an immediate crisis and a needs must, as you described it, to try and take the sort of long view. But the reality of climate change dynamics are that disease spread is one of the things that comes with raising global temperature, isn't it? And so resilience to climate change involves significantly more cold chain. In this case, in pharmaceuticals, it obviously also includes resilience in food chain as well. Um, And... I guess, and it's probably your kind of core mantra, uh, Toby, and the work that you've been doing through the last few years, decades probably, is about making sure we understand the balance and trade-off between those two things. How do you do cold chain to be resilient whilst not making the problem worse from a kind of climate point of view?
1: Exactly, and and the point is, when you talk about, um, you know, will these, if we trained up engineers, will they have a job in two or three years' time? I mean, first of all, you know, we don't know yet... Whether the vaccine is going to have to be given yearly or, 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 or you know, quite regularly, um, but also, as you said, there is going to be inc- an increase in demand. I mean, in 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 other requirements. So I think that the the growth of cooling we're already seeing is 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 massive and is driving actually a lot of the growth in climate change. I mean, it's it's ironic that 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 uh, the the the, the warming world is creating a need for cooling and cooling in itself is then creating a need, you know, is creating a warming world.
0: Yeah, and I guess, you know, I guess there is a, a, then we have to be nervous about a knee-jerk reaction that comes in the immediate months of this period where a lot of money is invested in building relatively permanent, so semi-permanent and semi-permanent cold chain infrastructure to move this vaccine that isn't necessarily the right sort of infrastructure to be used for the next 20 years when we're trying to achieve net zero.
1: Exactly, and that's why, I mean, I think we've got to look at the opportunity to use equipment which is sustainable or even solutions which are cross transferable, particularly in the emerging markets. So can we have potentially use, use cold stores and, and, and campaign approaches which, after life after the this problem is solved, can perhaps be, potentially be repurposed to provide cold storage for food
0: yeah. it's going to be hard work to get a, a government minister or a senior executive in one of these companies to sort of genuinely embrace the second part of that problem. I think that, you know could because of the imperative to get this to get a solution that is robust and it feels tested um, they're going to be focusing on kind of. The, the 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 stuff they know, and that could be uh, a bit of a step back in the kind of bigger picture. Moment.
1: Albeit that was, and I'm, um, you know, that was why I think, along with you, you know, we we started asking and and advocating that people started thinking about the cold chain challenge nine months ago.
0: Yeah, and I, you certainly you certainly were saying that, Toby, and I don't think it's something that's been particularly taken up in 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 the time uh, for whatever reason. Um, can we uh, just talk a little bit more about how, I mean, a thought that occurs to me is actually this is sort of something that's more kind of in my space around sort of the business dynamics of this. You know, people talk a lot about this COVID vaccine and sort of start thinking about the existing supply chain that exists for cold chain and how it's going to be used to deploy this vaccine. The reality, actually, listening to Pfizer speak, is that they're effectively operating? They're going to operate a a, a courier-style supply chain, but on a massive scale. So effectively, we're going to be putting uh, small amounts of they're going to be putting small amounts of vaccine in boxes and couriering it via charter planes and the like, to, as close to the end customer as they can possibly get, in order to sort of guarantee that it arrives within the sorts of timeframes that they they would need to. Now, obviously, that's particularly because of their, their, their temperature need, but that's what they've got in mind. Also, I think they've got a situation where they've got a, a captive audience, so the cost of supplying it isn't necessarily a big uh, a, term, a, a problem um, if it is quite expensive. Um, how do you feel that might play out in terms of global fairness, in terms of who can get hold of this, this sort of vaccine and all the vaccines in the next um, uh, next year?
1: Well, I mean, you know, as as I understand it, I mean... This this vaccine, the the Pfizer vaccine, is very much seen as a developed world solution, not suitable for low and middle income countries. So that is a massive warning flag or concern to me because we've we've got to see equitable distribution. Um, And I'm not it 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 has getting this into the developing world has uh, massive challenges. But until. We are confident that we have an alternative. Um, we need to understand what the strategy is for equitable distribution. Or is it just that the, the, the strategy is that, that we keep this for the richer com- countries and wait for Oxford or others to deliver something which is more practical for uh, the lower and middle income?
0: I think, I think we should overly, overly well, well, we should be concerned about some of the dynamics behind that and the bigger picture on that. But actually, you know, the reports are that some of the breakthroughs that we've seen with the Pfizer vaccine bode very, very well for the others. So I, mean, I think we would all hope that by the time we get to sort of early 2021, we're seeing significant progress on the more easy to understand scalable uh vaccine approaches that can be more equitable because actually that equity problem yes it's you know it is a global equity issue it's actually an equity issue within within developed markets as well you know yes
1: i mean and, and, and let's be clear is that it would be far preferable in the uk if we're delivering a vaccine at two to eight degrees c which a doctor can keep in his fridge you know in 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 his surgery than at something at minus eight minus 80 so the 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 issue of distribution is something that we can buy our way out of, but it it would be far easier um, if we can have something which is at two to eight because then actually also countries can control their own supply chains.
0: Yeah, Toby. So I think this be really really useful sort of quick quick insight, um, and obviously we we touched on some big themes that all could be massively explored. But let's sort of sort of sort of. We'll keep it tight today and just sort of talk about what are the sort of key things that we think government um and industry particularly government should be thinking about right now as they are as their attention is now focused on this idea of getting the supply chains up and running for vaccines um as they come on stream hopefully towards the end of this year
1: um well from my perspective looking at the uh, developing world i think the the last mile is really important, do we actually look at new solutions like using drones, which they look they're using in Rwanda with zipline um, and also uh, you know the, the need for training? I think that's a really big issue um, where there's there's opportunity to build back better. I do think we've got to be thinking around the environmental footprint so where possible. Going for low GWP solutions, natural refrigerants, uh, thinking about the energy resource um, would, would be my three immediate big asks um, to, to, to solve this or, or to solve this in a way which has lasting legacy.
0: Toby, thank you very much. I'm going to um, basically, um, I'll ask you now to come back and do a, let's do a session where we sort of focus very specifically on that kind of big picture challenges that you and I have talked about a lot over the, the last year. Um, my thoughts um, to add to what Toby has just said and really about um, making sure that there is that key understand. Well, firstly, the government understands that, this, that the cold chain stands ready to help. You know, I think that everybody in the supply chain, um, well, they showed at the start of, this, of the lockdown their ability to step up and, and, and make it happen when, when we had the big demand surge and we were able to deal with that in the UK. Um, we've seen significant innovation around the supply chains for PPE, for testing and other things, all playing with the cold chain playing a role. So we stand ready to help with this um, as required. And... Um, and and also we make sure that, as Toby said, that training issue, making sure that people understand that handling and managing temperature integrity through the chain is going to be the key to this vaccine working and not working, and making sure that we are using the professionals that understand the issue, that have the experience, and are being involved in the process at an early stage in order to ensure that we get it right, um, because we don't want to be in a situation where we suddenly realise that something hasn't been covered. Um, that could uh, be a big setback when everyone's hopes and uh, hopes and expectations are with are with this working. So, Toby, thank you very much. Um, any other any other thoughts before we sort of uh, sign it off?
1: I think you know the other thing is that historically, I think the cold chain for pharma and health and vaccines has has always been sort of quite separate from the cold chain for food. Um, the the challenge of of vaccine immunization for a pandemic is about volume and velocity. It's about, you know, we've got to vaccinate potentially 5 billion people, potentially twice 10 billion vaccines in a, sh- in a shorter space of time as possible. The food industry is very good at moving volumes of products swiftly from farms in the developing south, in the, sorry, in the global south, to the north and, and, and through our countries. I mean, 60% of our food in the UK touches cold chain at some point. So we're good, the, the food chain's good and very um, experienced in, in moving product all around the world from a small farm to a household or a supermarket. So, my big ask would be that I think we need to bring the two together and learn from the food industry's expertise in speed and in, in speed and volume for this challenge
0: and i think you're i think you're right i think that one of the problems that probably worries me is that obviously we talk about the pfizer vaccine right now and we're talking about getting that out at the sorts of scales and that they feel able to produce it and we aren't talking about what's involved in actually immunizing five billion people um compared to actually the the millions that we are talking about and at that point it is a mass mobilization effort and i guess and I'm pretty, you know, I'm speaking for my members here a bit. I'm sure that when asked to, out to step up to that challenge, they would want to play a, as much of a role as they can.
1: And they should, because they yeah. know how to do this.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Toby, thanks a lot. Thanks for your time. Thanks for just coming to bring this together so quickly. I hopefully. Um, listeners have found it interesting and useful obviously we don't have all the answers we are not directly involved in the supply chain and we are you know we have our particular interests and expertise in this area but um it certainly is a an interesting and important moment for uh for the world and for our industry so thank you toby for your time today
1: thank you very much
0: and um we'll talk to you again soon
1: thank you speak to you soon shane cheers bye. cheers bye
0: so that's the end of our show thank you for listening to the cold chain podcast Hopefully you're enjoying the content we're sharing with you via this platform. Um, If you haven't already, please consider signing up and subscribing to our podcast. You can do so on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, and a range of other places. Um, If you, the more you subscribe, the more uh, feedback we get. And also if you can, please leave a review um, on that platform. So that again, helps people to find uh, this edition or even better send it around and circulate it to your friends. Thanks very much and look forward to the next edition.